Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. My podcast can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and all those places. And I also have a blog and you can check that out at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is October 6th, 2021, and we're transitioning away from the analysis of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against North Carolina State. And I want to talk about some things that are happening now in really a current events context that are really important. And there are a series of things happening right now that are seemingly unconnected, but are actually part of an organized, sophisticated campaign put together by NCAA lobbyists, lawyers, and public relations spin doctors to re-engage the debate about federal protections and immunities for the sole benefit of the National Collegiate Athletic Association in the context of name, image, and likeness. And we are right back today to where we were in the fall of 2019 when the NCAA was formulating its congressional strategy and then into early 2020 when the NCAA went to Congress, they went to the Senate and the Senate Commerce Committee, a subcommittee of commerce actually, to make the case for federal protections and immunities that would be a precondition to the NCAA offering any name, image, and likeness benefits for athletes. And they went to Congress saying, we need your help. We need your help. And there was Mark Emmert and there was Bob Bowlesby, the president of the University of Kansas was there. And importantly, a member of the House of Representatives, Anthony Gonzalez, a Republican from Ohio, was there. I'm going to talk more about Gonzalez because there was a hearing that was conducted last week on September 30th. It was the first hearing conducted in the House of Representatives, and it was largely built around Gonzalez's proposals to offer name, image, and likeness benefits. And that hearing was conducted in the House Energy and Commerce Committee, actually a subcommittee of Energy and Commerce. And we're going to break that hearing down because some really interesting things happened there. And then we're going to also talk about that in the context of some of these other things that are swirling around this renewed debate. But it's important to understand how we got from there to here and to be very clear about why the NCAA went to Congress in February of 2020, what its objectives were, and how it has transformed its argument, its re-engagement with Congress in light of some of the most important events in the history of college sports that have played out between their initial engagement in February of 2020 and this hearing last week on September 30th of 2021. The college sports world has changed fundamentally. And the NCAA, as only the NCAA can do, is right back making the same arguments in September of 2021 that it was making in the fall of 2019 and early 2020 as if the events of the last year simply didn't occur. So I want to press rewind to the things that the NCAA, and at the time, the Power Five, they were working in lockstep in their congressional campaign, were asking of the federal government. Their overarching theme, their overarching goal was to eliminate any and all external regulators who might threaten the NCAA's regulatory supremacy and impose obligations on it that would force the NCAA and the Power Five into the 21st century. And those external regulators are four things. Number one, the United States Congress. So they were making their case to Congress to ask for their help and get Congress locked in and bought into the NCAA's construction of reality. The other external regulator is state legislatures. And we had these state laws that had been passed and were going into effect in 2021. And there was this sense of urgency because that is an external regulatory threat that NCAA does not want to contend with. And then the third external regulatory threat are federal courts. And these antitrust suits filed by athletes 
challenging NCAA compensation limits, going back to this white suit in 2006 when cost of attendance was the issue, then with O'Bannon, where name, image, and likeness was the issue, and then Austin, where the whole set of amateurism-based compensation limits were being challenged, and it wound up being whittled down to education benefits. But in those three suits, the NCAA spent over a half a billion dollars to fight to the death to prevent any of those encroachments on its amateurism-based compensation limits and its amateurism-based regulatory model. And then the fourth and perhaps most important regulatory threat that the NCAA was trying to eliminate were free markets. And free markets are the ultimate threat to the propaganda that the NCAA has spending for decades that if a single penny above the value of an athletic scholarship is spent on the athletes who provide the value in the product, and those are big-time football and big-time men's basketball players, then college sports would come to a fatal collapse. And the reason that free markets are the most potent external regulatory threat is that they would expose or could expose all of those narratives as a complete fraud. And the NCAA has built its propaganda around what might happen. It doesn't want to look at what actually happens and doesn't want to ease its restrictions and say, well, let's see what happened, which you would think uh, would be an appropriate intelligent response to their business model and the criticisms of it, particularly in the context of higher education, where we want to look at facts and evidence, not at fear and uh, conjecture and propaganda. But their whole opposition to bringing college sports into the 21st century has been built on fear. So what precisely did the NCAA ask of Congress in 2020 as a precondition to offering a single name, image, and likeness opportunity for athletes? They wanted three things. First, they wanted absolute antitrust immunity. They did not want to be subject to federal lawsuits challenging NCAA compensation limits, just like White and O'Bannon and Austin, and now this house suit that's pending in uh, California. They wanted that liability wiped off the books, and Congress can provide antitrust immunity. It's an extraordinary federal power and rarely granted. But the NCAA marched right in and said, you need to give this to us. And if you don't, then we just can't do anything on name, image, and likeness. They asked for that in Congress. Then that is precisely what they were seeking in the Austin case. And remember, it was the NCAA, not the athletes, who appealed the Austin decision. The athletes filed it in 2014 and got a modest remedy through these limited education benefits. And they were okay with that. They weren't going to appeal to the Ninth Circuit. And the attorneys got their attorney's fees and all that. Everybody was happy. I don't think the remedy was very effective for the athletes, but it was a technical win. But it didn't do much harm to the NCAA because the reasoning of the Austin court was bound by the reasoning of the O'Bannon decision. And in O'Bannon, the Ninth Circuit gave the NCAA essentially a qualified antitrust immunity for any benefits or payments that were not tethered to education, which prevented a free market for the value of the athlete's services. So the NCAA didn't have really much reason to appeal on the merits of the decision that came out of the district court in Austin, but but they did. And the reason that they did that, the reason they appealed to the Ninth Circuit, the reason they appealed to the United States Supreme Court was to get a complete and total antitrust immunity, a judicially created antitrust immunity, which a federal court can provide. The Supreme Court can provide that. And the NCAA lied about its intentions. To this day, it refuses to admit that its primary purpose in pursuing those appeals was to obtain outright antitrust immunity. And the Supreme Court analyzed the case as if that's what the NCAA was asking for. That was the central question that the uh, Supreme Court analyzed because that was the central question presented in the appeal by the NCAA. And in a nine to zero decision that had some very important symbolic value to the athletes' rights movement, the United States Supreme Court said, no, you're not special. You're not entitled to antitrust immunity. And there's no question about that aspect of the ruling. 
But the NCAA can still go back to Congress, and that's exactly what they're doing now. So they want antitrust immunity. They want federal courts completely taken out of the picture. And it's also important to remember that even though the NCAA's request to Congress arises in the context of name, image, and likeness, the federal antitrust immunity they seek is far broader than name, image, and likeness. It is not limited to name, image, and likeness. It simply is not. And when you look at the work product of the working group, this NCAA-created working group that was put together in 2019 to try to beat back these state laws and to lobby Congress and to manipulate Congress, the three things that they're asking for when they talk about antitrust immunity, it is not in any way limited to name, image, and likeness. And that certainly isn't how they pitched it in the Austin case. It would have applied to any NCAA regulatory authority that went to its quote-unquote eligibility rules or any of its amateurism-based compensation limits. They wanted to just wipe federal courts off the map, and they still do. The second thing they're asking for is a declaration from the federal government that athletes cannot be deemed employees of their university. That is an extraordinary ask. And it would require the federal government to say that despite these athletes working 50 hours a week and bringing in billions and billions of dollars worth of revenue, and I say these athletes, I'm talking about football, men's basketball players at the highest level, and the NCAA does not want those athletes to do what the Northwestern football players did in 2014, and that is attempt to organize a union to insist on some basic rights, just basic dignity rights in their relationship as laborers and and employees to their university employers. And the NCAA doesn't want that to happen. The third, and I believe, and have always argued from the very beginning of my writing three years ago and in my podcasting, that the federal preemption of state laws that in any way interfere with NCAA regulatory authority is the crown jewel of the NCAA's campaign in the Senate and now in the House of Representatives. And as I'm going to discuss, as I talk about this hearing last week, there is growing support for that one single thing. And this is what the NCAA focused on in June of 2021, just a few months ago, before this July 1st deadline when these state nil laws were going into effect, the first wave of state nil laws were going into effect. It was all about preemption and it was, we got to prevent the patchwork and the hodgepodge and all that stuff. And now, just four months later, they are right back where they were in June. But the problem for the NCAA's advocates now in October of 2021 is that we have a nil market. The NCAA didn't get what it wanted. It didn't get all these federal protections and immunities as a precondition to the existence of a nil market. And the nil market exists because the NCAA refused to follow through on its promises to actually pass legislation that would have allowed it to control the narrative. And the reason they didn't do that is that From the very beginning, they weren't going to provide a single nil benefit unless they got federal protections and immunities, extraordinary federal protections and immunities that no private nonprofit interest has ever had granted. I mean, this ask was so audacious on its face, but they were only going to provide the nil benefits when they got those protections. And if they had gotten those protections, they wouldn't have had to provide a single meaningful nil benefit to athletes. And they wouldn't have. And if they get federal preemption now, which is what they're asking for, they're going to pull back on what the states have done, what the conferences have done, what the executive orders have done, what the university policies have done. This new marketplace is going to shrink in a nanosecond. And given the power of the NCAA and Power Five's megaphone, the opposition to that and the criticism to that will be shouted down. It'll be short-lived and shouted down. And that's where the NCAA is headed. So now I just want to talk a little bit about this hearing. I'm going to identify just for general purposes the witnesses that testified and then the why of the hearing and the timing of the hearing and the themes that developed and then tie that into how I see this hearing fitting into the NCAA's overall strategy, its very short-term strategy to try to remake its image, to re-engage Congress, and to create 
a place in the college sports world that has some relevance. All this is going to tie into this new constitutional committee. And remember that when that committee was formed, Robert Gates, Bob Gates, an independent member of the NCAA Board of Governors, is the face of this committee. And he said, look, the NCAA is in a battle for relevance. And that is an overarching theme in how the NCAA and in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are positioning themselves in this new multifaceted campaign to basically eliminate external regulators. So let's start with the title of this hearing. It was titled, A Level Playing Field, College Athletes' Rights to Their Name, Image, and Likeness. And if you've been paying attention to this whole name, image, and likeness issue, that level playing field theme may sound familiar. And the reason it may sound familiar is that the level playing field theme is the exact same theme and exact same name as a bill offered by Anthony Gonzalez, this House member, Republican from Ohio, in conjunction with a Missouri Democrat, Emmanuel Cleaver, and some other co-sponsors that had a bipartisan, biracial, dual gender face. And a bill that the NCAA trumpeted on its propaganda website as the perfect template. And it meets a lot of check marks. I talked in detail about that bill in episode uh, 24, titled Current Events Chaos. And I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. But you can check out that episode and get a sense of what that bill does and how the NCAA has responded to it. Because it's, in my judgment, not coincidental that that bill was released initially on September 20th of 2020. And that was five days after the last of four planned and coordinated Senate hearings that, that occurred. And it was, I think, an attempt to try to bring together House interests and Senate interests and the NCAA and Power Five were going to try to make their grand push to try to get something in place as quickly as they could. And how support was so important because the campaign in the Senate was built exclusively around NCAA-friendly Republican senators. They were driving the train. Marco Rubio, Lamar Alexander, Lindsey Graham, Jerry Moran, and Roger Wicker, all Republicans, were really pushing for this NCAA-friendly legislation. And they were on the clock because you had the November elections coming up. And sure enough, the Republicans lost control of the White House. And then in January, after the Georgia special elections on January 5th, the Republicans lost control of the Senate. And then the NCAA pulls completely out of the Senate and out of Congress. And it's licking its wounds. And all of a sudden, its initiative, its voluntary initiative to change its rules to allow name, image, and likeness compensation were put on hold. The NCAA just slammed the brakes on that. And that came from Mark Emmert, not from the divisions who were tasked to put together name, image, and likeness legislation. It was just some really interesting stuff that happened there. But uh, the NCAA kind of let things die down and they reassessed and they were looking at where they wanted to put their energy and re-strategize with Congress. And then in April of 2021, Gonzalez and Cleaver re-released the same bill. <laughs> it was really an interesting strategy, I think. And I talk about that in that episode 24. But the NCAA came back around after that re-release and then uh, restated their support for this bill and this bipartisan bill. They really wanted the bipartisan theme to come through because that's going to be essential to them getting anything passed in Congress or the perception of bipartisan partisanship. And at the time of the re-release, Emmanuel Cleaver, he's a Democrat from Missouri, and Gonzalez is the Republican from Ohio. But Cleaver issued a press release on his House website, and he is pumping the re-release. And the way he pitches this re-release is interesting. Cleaver is really trying to make the case that this bill is necessary because the NCAA has refused to honor its commitment to follow through on voluntary name, image, and likeness legislation and, and voluntary rules changes that they had promised would be in place by January of 2021. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, they pulled out for disingenuous reasons. But Cleaver says, with the NCAA's failure to implement its self-stated goal of creating a 
name, image, and likeness rule that level the playing field for athletes across the country, it is clear that time has come for Congress to address this issue on a bipartisan basis. I'm proud to once again introduce the Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act with Congressman Gonzalez, which will rectify the economic injustice on and on and on. So Cleaver is African-American, and he's trying to present this as an issue of social justice and racial justice, and he has teamed with Gonzalez. But remember, this is in April of 2021. We don't have the Austin decision, and we aren't really bumping up directly against this July 1st deadline when these state nil laws are going to go into effect. And the message starts to change a little bit after the NCAA gets its butt kicked in Austin. And then on June 30th, when seven hours and 40 minutes before the state nil laws go into effect, the NCAA basically waved the white flag on nil, didn't change a single rule, but initiated a quote-unquote interim policy that, for all intents and purposes, lifted most restrictions on name, image, and likeness, except for the most crucial ones, and those include no pay-for-play. Athletes can't be employees, and the deals have to be with third parties, not with the university. So on July 1st, Gonzalez writes a letter to the chairman, of the Committee on Energy and Commerce, and then the ranking member of the Committee on Energy and Commerce in the House. And the chair is Frank Pallone. He's a Democrat from New Jersey. The ranking member is Kathy McMorris Rogers. She is a Republican from Washington. There are five signatories. All are men. Four are white men. The only African-American signatory is a freshman House member Burgess Owens, who had a high-profile football career, and he's a Republican from Utah. But it's important to note how Gonzalez characterizes what has just happened. And what, in reality, what has just happened is the complete failure of NCAA leadership, exactly what Emmanuel Cleaver was referring to in his April 26, 2021 press release when they re-released this bill. And the purpose of this Gonzalez letter is to encourage, they're actually begging for the House Energy and Commerce Committee to hold a hearing because to date, as of the July 1st of 2021, there hadn't been a single hearing in the House of Representatives. There had been six prior hearings in 2020 and 2021, all in the Senate. So here is how Gonzalez characterizes the NCAA's complete failure to do what it had promised to do. He says, in fall 2019, the NCAA announced they would work to provide student-athletes with guidance on how to capitalize from their nil under league rules, proposing to create new rules no later than January 2020. Yesterday, the NCAA finally made good on this promise by announcing they would allow for all student-athletes to capitalize on their nil beginning today. Despite this momentous step forward, there must be federal legislation to set a uniform standard across the nation, preserve the spirit of college athletics for future generations, and most importantly, protect student-athletes who find themselves facing a convoluted and unfair patchwork of laws, state laws. My judgment with this letter, Gonzalez drops any pretense of being an independent, free-thinking advocate for student-athlete rights. And I'm using student-athletes as he would. And as I mentioned earlier, he was the first witness to testify at the very first hearing in February of 2020 in the Senate. And his name has come up again and again, and his bill's been pumped by the NCAA. It's been pumped by people in the media. And now, when the NCAA is in the midst of admitting defeat on what it has characterized as one of the most important things the NCAA has ever had to deal with, Anthony Gonzalez says to his colleagues in the House of Representatives, that the NCAA finally did exactly what they said they were going to do. They made good on their promise, and that is simply not true. And just to gild that point a little bit more, on June 30th of 2021, Gonzalez released a press 
statement. And this is the same day that the NCAA is waving the white flag. And this re press release reads, Today, U.S. Representative Anthony Gonzalez released the following statement following a historic decision by the NCAA to allow college athletes to be able to benefit from their name, image, and likeness. And this is his quote. Throughout my student-athlete experience at The Ohio State University, I advocated for student-athletes to have equal treatment as other students on campus, the ability to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. Today is a monumental day for college sports as the NCAA takes this important step forward. However, our work is not done yet. We need to take the momentum from this preliminary decision and create one national standard on the federal level. My bipartisan Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act would create one national standard and remains the only bipartisan name, image, and likeness bill currently in the United States Congress. I remain optimistic that we can reach our ultimate goal in the near future, and I look forward to working with my colleagues to get this done. And when you read this June 30th press release in conjunction with the July 1st letter to the chair and ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Anthony Gonzalez is manipulating the messaging to make it appear as if the NCAA is the hero. Mark Emmert is the hero. Hooray for Mark Emmert. Hooray for the NCAA. But oh, by the way, we still need to eliminate all these state laws that forced this issue, that made these name, image, and likeness opportunities possible in the first place in spite of the NCAA, not because of it. We still need to eliminate all of those laws. But that's the context of Anthony Gonzalez's Level Playing Field Act. So this uh, hearing that occurred last week, I think in part may have been just a professional courtesy to Gonzalez and perhaps to a lesser extent to Cleaver. It's not clear where Cleaver stands on all this. And the chair of that subcommittee introduced a letter or made part of the record a letter from Cleaver and Gonzalez, but I couldn't find it in the congressional record or on the House Energy Commerce website or the C-SPAN website. So I'm not sure what they said. But I think there's some element of professional courtesy here. And the hearing had to have been called by or approved by Pallone. He is the chair of energy and commerce, but it's not quite clear what the backstory was. But there were five witnesses who testified at this hearing. You had Mark Emmert, NCAA president. You had Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor University. And I'm going to talk a lot about her because she was right out of central casting for the NCAA. And then you had Jackie McWilliams, an African-American woman who is the commissioner of the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association, a Division II conference comprised of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Then we had one athlete, and her name is Cami Marsh. She is also African-American, and she is a golfer on the women's golf team at Washington State. And Washington State is a Power 5 school in the Pac-12 conference. And then we had Ramoji Huma, who is uh, also African-American. And he was the only one of these five witnesses who was representing athlete interest. And he is the executive director of the National College Players Association, which is an advocacy group. I'm going to talk about all these witnesses in more detail below. But you had essentially an NCAA-friendly witness list, which makes me wonder how this hearing came together, particularly when you have Democrat leadership in the House and on this particular committee and subcommittee. But let's look at the timing. Why is this hearing so important now? And I hinted at the NCAA's motives in re-engaging in, in Congress now, but why now. And I think that there are four things that drove the timing of this hearing. And one is NCAA desperation over the impact of the external regulatory forces of free markets. And Mark Emmer just came out and admitted that the longer 
that this nil market is in place that the NCAA doesn't have iron-fisted control over, the more difficult it's going to be to put the toothpaste back into the tube. I think that's already the case, but Emmert is in a panic mode. The NCAA is in panic mode because the external regulator that is free markets is exposing the sky is falling propaganda from the NCAA as nothing more than another series of NCAA lies. And you have to remember that the primary elements of the free market that are in place in this new nil market are the result of the NCAA dumping their nil garbage at the steps of the institutions and the governors and states that didn't have uh, name, image, and likeness laws because the NCAA refused to follow through on their promise to voluntarily change their rules and have name, image, and likeness legislation that would have governed the market place and they mark emmert's incompetence and arrogance is the reason that there are free market features that are filling in the gaps but as i'm going to explain also in a little bit for the most part all of these laws the state laws the executive orders the individual university policies are strikingly similar which makes a mockery of the ncaa's claim for the need for uniformity and its preemption request but this is a Mark Emmert-created issue. And now he's saying that there's chaos and calamity, and he wants Congress to clean it up. So he, he dumps his nil garbage on the doorstep of these universities. And then the disruption that results from that 11th hour dump, he's now saying is the reason that we need federal legislation. We need federal legislation to eliminate all the chaos that was created by my incompetence. Only Mark Emmert could do this, and only a compliant media would not call him out for this. So the NCAA believes it's on the clock because of this maturing market, and that dovetails with the timetable for this NCAA Constitutional Committee. And when this Constitutional Committee was first formed, I wasn't quite sure where it was going. It's coming into pretty clear focus for me. And this is nothing more than a smokescreen for the NCAA to try to make it look as if it's doing something important and transformative with its regulatory model and its governance structure. But in fact, it is simply trying to reposition itself to come back to where they were from the very beginning. And remember, this timetable for the constitutional committee is that they're supposed to have proposals in place to completely rethink and reimagine the NCAA governing principles and the speed with which they can legislate around those principles. That's supposed to be in place by November 15th. And then there's supposed to be a convention, and I think in December it's going to ratify the Constitution, and then they'll be put into legislation, I think, in January of 2022. But that's a pretty short time frame, and I believe that the NCAA is positioning itself in Congress and through some of these external advocacy campaigns. Notably, a letter that was sent the week before the hearing from 16 ACC athletes from the 15 schools, and then one school had two representatives. But these athletes were ostensibly flying under the banner of the Student Athlete Advisory Committee, which is an NCAA-created structure that's at the national level, the conference level, and the school level that is tied directly to institutional interests. But this SACA group from the ACC sent this letter basically saying, hey, we got to put the brakes on nil, and we're not looking out for the little guys, and what about the non-revenue sports, and what about the collegiate model, and we need a national uniform standard. They were saying the exact same thing students were in October of 2019, When the working group's big interim report came out and the NCAA Board of Governors said, yay, we're going to have nil compensation. And this National Student Athletic Advisory Council sent a letter basically saying, wait a minute, let's make sure this, you know, the little guys are protected and the non-revenue sports are protected. And this is all about these revenue producing athletes and football and men's basketball. And they get all the attention and they get all the money. And what about us? What about us? And it was an us against them narrative. And that is being repeated. The theme is identical. The uh, spokespeople are virtually identical. And the NCAA, just as it used that October 29th letter 
as fuel for its Iron Throne campaign for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. The NCAA's allies in the Senate are going to use this ACC letter for the very same purposes, and they're going to try to say, that, well, look, everybody agrees the student-athletes want this. What they don't say is that 85% of the athletes who signed both of those letters are white and in non-revenue sports, and there's not uh, a meaningful representation of revenue-producing athletes, high-level Division I football players, Power 5 football players, or high-level Power 5 men's basketball players. And it is, I'm going to talk about this a, a little bit more as I get into some of the witness testimony, because that theme was alive and well at this hearing last week. So we've got all this activity now, and it is on the same timetable as this constitutional committee, because I think what you're going to see in November, and then between the proposals that are offered in November and then this convention in December, you are going to see an NCAA Power 5 in-system stakeholder beneficiary blitzkrieg in Congress to try to get a federal law that gives them as much of what they can get of the things that they started asking for originally in 2020. And if they just get preemption, that's going to be a problem. I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But that's part of the timing here. And then the other thing that's interesting is that the day before this hearing, on September 29th of 2021, the director of the National Labor Relations Board, or actually the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzzo, sent out a memo, and it was a statement, a position statement, on the employment status of revenue-producing college athletes. And the subject title, and this is, this is really interesting, the subject title is Statutory Rights of Players at Academic Institutions, and then there's a parenthetical, Student Athletes, and after the parenthetical, there's a footnote. And it says, so the whole uh, subject line is Statutory Rights of Players at Academic Institutions, Student Athletes, and Paren under the National Labor Relations Act. And that footnote, that first footnote, says this, while players at academic institutions are commonly referred to as, quote, student athletes, I have chosen not to use that term in this memorandum because the term was created to provide those individuals of workplace protections. And she's referring back to the Walter Byers years when Byers created the term student athlete out of whole cloth to avoid workers' compensation liability. It has been a fraud for 70 years. And finally, the general counsel of the National uh, Labor Relations Board is saying that. And remember, in 2014, when the Northwestern players tried to unionize, the Regional Labor Relations Board said, yes, they're employees, following an objective test. And then the National Board kind of punted and said, well, we don't have jurisdiction. They just didn't want to go there. But now, in September of 2021, the general counsel is saying, there is simply no way that you can make the case that these athletes are not employees. And I've been saying that all along. And that's what this Murphy-Sanders bill that they introduced, I think, in early 2021 said that bill was going to require these athletes to be recognized as employees under federal law. And that is in direct conflict with one of the three central prongs of the NCAA's quest for the Iron Throne, and that is that these athletes cannot be deemed employees. So that was a subtext of this hearing. So I think the NCAA is trying to create a sense of urgency, to gin up a sense of urgency. And that is done in part by this very short time frame for the Constitutional Committee to do its work. And because its work is now being conflated with this push in Congress, there is this manufactured sense of urgency to get something done immediately, immediately. <laughs> but when we get to analyzing this Constitutional Committee and the work product that has come Come out of it so far, there's going to be virtually zero change to the NCAA. And on the backside of this, there's, there may be some cosmetic changes, but they simply haven't given themselves time to do a comprehensive, thorough, thoughtful analysis of a true reimagination of their role as regulators in college sports. So then the next thing I want to get to now are a couple of overarching themes that are really important. And they came through some questions that Congresswoman Lori Trahan, she's a Democrat from Massachusetts, asked of Mark Emmert at the very beginning. And Trahan has been a proponent of athletes' rights. And in February of 2021, actually February 4th, 
Trahan introduced in the House a bill titled the College Athlete Economic Freedom Act. And it, like many of these bills, calls for a loosening of the restrictions on name, image, and likeness. And it doesn't include all the NCAA-friendly provisions, but it does include preemption. So that, that was interesting. Trahan knows her stuff. She was a former Division One athlete, but she was really chomping at the bit to come after Emmert. And she did something that was really important that has not been done in any of these hearings. There have been now seven hearings in both chambers across let's see, four committees over the last 20 months. And this is the first time that any member of Congress has challenged some of the fundamental precepts of the world according to the NCAA and Mark Emmert, and also finally put on the table the influence of NCAA lobbyists, lawyers, and spin doctors. And so I just want to read uh, what Trahan said, because this is going to set the table for the rest of the analysis of this hearing. And it's so important to remember that all of these hearings, going back to 2020, have been dog and pony shows orchestrated by the NCAA and by their high-powered lobbyists, Brownstein Hyatt, which has been on the payroll uh, of the NCAA since 2014. And the NCAA spends millions of dollars on these lobbyists. And if you think that the important decisions in college sports are being determined by university administrators and in-system athletics interests and faculty members and students sitting down at conference tables at individual uh, NCAA member institutions. You're kidding yourself. They're irrelevant to the discussion. The entire discussion about the future of college sports since at least 2019 has been dictated by inside the beltway lobbyists and lawyers and spin doctors. And everything that has come out in these congressional testimonies, with one exception, and that was the June 17th hearing where we had athletes testifying for the first time. And that hearing occurred in the Senate Commerce Committee. And Commerce Democrats put together that hearing. It was the only hearing among those seven that the Republicans didn't have direct control in putting together. And guess what? Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi, led a boycott of that hearing. And the Republicans sat it out. The Witnesses at that hearing were African-American women. It was just a horrible move and a terrible look. And again, these NCAA-friendly Republican senators got away with it because the media refused to cover it. And there was some powerful and important testimony at that June 17th hearing. And on June 20th, I did an episode on that, and it's titled Roger Wicker Leads Boycott of Athlete Hearing. But it wasn't just a boycott of athletes. It was a boycott of African-American athletes. And even though revenue-producing black athlete wasn't called to testify, the women who testified, the African-American women who testified, were really tuned in to their experience. And it was, I just thought it was a, f- a fascinating hearing, and I would encourage you to check that episode out. I did a long montage at the beginning that captured some important quotes from the witnesses. And I just think it's really an important insight into not only the true feelings of African-American athletes in the system across the board, male, female, revenue, non-revenue. But it also was a really important insight into the arrogance and indifference of these Republican senators who are carrying the NCAA's water. But in the rest of those hearings, the six hearings, the NCAA has controlled the narrative and the narrative has been profoundly dishonest and misleading. So I want this analysis for this hearing, but in all of the analyses about what's happening in college sports, to run through the lens not of college administrators and presidents and faculty committees acting in good faith to try to solve some of the issues in college sports, because that's not happening. It has to be viewed through the lens of NCAA lobbyists whose job it is to manipulate the political process to get for the NCAA and Power Five what they want, to protect their commercial interests and their revenue streams and their seven-figure salaries. And but the vast majority of the beneficiaries in that system are white. And the people who generate the revenue are black. And they exist in two sports, football and men's basketball. I'm going to talk a little bit more about 
the collegiate model again because Livingstone invoked that in her testimony. But here's what Trahan says. She says, I think it's fair to say that for a long time, the main argument against allowing college athletes to be compensated for the use of their nil was that it would effectively end college athletics as we know it. But based on what you've seen as president of the NCAA in the last three months, since the association's new nil policy went into effect, do you believe that college athletics are on the verge of extinction? <laughs> and, you know, Emmert, as only Emmert can, says, well, thank you for the question, Congresswoman. I think, first of all, the resistance among schools, blah, blah, blah. He goes on with a, a response that is a non-response. It doesn't really answer the question. And he's back to frameworks and guardrails and all the propaganda he was spitting out beginning in 2019. But then Trahan goes on to something that I think may be more important. Obviously, the sky hasn't fallen, and the NCAA has been playing that card for decades, and every time they're wrong, and they're wrong again with uh, name, image, and likeness compensation. But Trahan says, typically what happens, you know, when we, Congress, work on large, long overdue issues like this one, there's a temptation, and frankly, it's pretty common for power brokers like the NCAA to withhold their priorities and work behind the scenes against bills viewed not as in their favor. As you know, Senator Murphy and I have legislation that's central around protecting college athletes. Would you commit to working with members of this committee to craft a legislative fix that prioritizes college athletes? And then she asks this. And if so, would you also pledge not to dispatch your lobbyists to sink a package that has the support necessary for that legislation to become law? And Mark Emmert just went into the NCAA two-step, and he was caught off guard by this. And these questions that Trahan asks Go to the heart of NCAA hypocrisy. And these are the very questions that Congress should have been asking all along. Who's calling the shots here? And that's one of the central inquiries. It should be right there, front and center, in this whole discussion about name, image, and likeness, in this whole discussion about the proper role of the NCAA, in this whole discussion about athletes' rights, civil rights, and social justice. Who is calling the shots here? And Emmert doesn't want anyone to know the extent to which that lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations experts are truly running college sports right now. And Mark Emmert is just a wind-up doll trying to keep his 3 to $4 million salary intact. And that's what this campaign, this renewed campaign is all about. It is preserving the NCAA administrative state. And that's exactly why Mark Emmert was sitting in front of the House of Representatives on September 30th. And Trahan really leaned into that. And you could just tell that Mark Emmert did not want to go there. And that, of course, highlights another fundamental irony in this whole campaign in Congress. And that is that the very reason that Mark Emmert and the Power Five have been on their knees since February of 2020 begging Congress to help it out, we, we need your help, we need your help, is because the NCAA has proven that it is incapable of doing it on its own and it has no intention of doing it on its own. And it is only going to pretend to act in the athlete's best interest only if it's protected from any external regulatory threat, which means it doesn't have to do anything at all. But we're here in front of Congress because of the NCAA's failure to self-govern. And now we're supposed to wait on this constitutional committee to tell us that everything's okay. Now we really understand it. We've looked at this and in, th in three months, we're going to come up with a whole new way of doing business. That, it's not going to happen. And the fact that members of the media are even giving this constitutional committee any credibility and any credence is just a statement of the power of the NCAA's special interests and the effectiveness of its lobbyists, lawyers, and public relations experts. So now I want to talk about the themes that this hearing was built around. Some of them were explicit. Some of them were unstated. But they are, in the aggregate, NCAA Friendly. And I just want to go through them quickly, and then I'm going to talk about some of them more specifically in the context of individual witness testimony. And this is the game that the NCAA has been playing, again, throughout its congressional campaign. And these themes, both explicit and unstated, are the product of NCAA lobbyists, NCAA lawyers, and how the NCAA is trying to position itself to get what it wants. And it's very good at doing that. So let's start with the very title of the hearing and also the title of this Gonzalez bill, and that is the level playing field. We have to protect 
or restore a level playing field. And that is just a fraudulent narrative because there has never been a level playing field and there never can be a level playing field. And that narrative flies in the face of the very existence of the Power Five, the autonomy legislation, and the divisional structure. The big-time powerful football interests since 1973 have been working hard to segregate and isolate their interests, their economic interests, so that they can maximize revenue, keep the money to themselves, and then still be under the NCAA umbrella where they can claim to be acting as nonprofits with a straight face. But if anything has come out of this debate about aligning responsibilities with authorities as the Constitutional Committee is supposedly doing, it should be that Divisions 2 and Divisions 3 have absolutely no business being attached to the money-making component of big-time college sports. And the other way of looking at that is that we just chop off Power 5 products, all of them, just take the Power 5 and just send them out into their own association. And the Power 5 have threatened to do that, to secede from the NCAA if they didn't get their way to aggregate and reinforce their independence and their power and their commercial interests under the NCAA umbrella, but they haven't done it. And the reason they haven't done it, I talked about in the Prisoner's Dilemmas episode, and I'll link to those as well. But the Power Five is getting a lot from the NCAA, and the NCAA is getting a lot from the Power Five. But nobody's talking honestly about whether the NCAA has any business having uh, Division Three schools in the same universe with Power Five football and Power Five men's basketball. It's, kind of, it's ridiculous. But that is part of this Kabuki theater that the NCAA has been playing for, uh, really, for 70 years now. But there is no level playing field. There never will be a level playing field. And the Power Five have created an insurmountable competitive advantage relative to the rest of the NCAA, including the Group of Five, the Football Championship Series, lower level Division One, and certainly all of Division Two and Division Three. The level playing field myth is just that. And a related theme there is this us against them narrative, the little guys against the big guys. And it's presented as a question of fairness and it's rich against poor, black against white, male against female. And these narratives like the bastardized version of the collegiate model, this displacement theory, which I'm going to talk more about when I talk about Livingstone's testimony, all create divisive narratives that make it appear as if the revenue-producing athletes, not just the revenue-producing interests, but the revenue-producing athletes who are overwhelmingly African-American are greedy, ungrateful takers. They just take in this system. They don't give anything. (laughs) But the entire business model is built around the regressive transfer of wealth from them to these downstream uh, beneficiaries, overwhelmingly white, who can't pay for themselves. And those narratives are just indefensible, but they were alive and well and on full display at this hearing. The other theme that I think is really important is this isolation of name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA's allies, mostly Republicans, and this again came through loud and clear by the questions of Republican House members at this hearing, but they want to just get this nil thing taken care of, which means preemption. They just want this one little thing. And then we can talk about all these big picture issues. The athletes' rights advocates and the proponents of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, this piece of legislation that was sponsored by Booker and Blumenthal, they're saying, wait a minute, we can talk about nil, but we're not going to talk only about nil. Because if we don't talk about these other issues, they will never be solved. You're going to get your nil protection, which means you're going to completely shut down the nil market through your preemption power and perhaps antitrust immunity powers. And then we're never going to have another discussion because you would have no incentive to have the other discussion. And that battle was going on, I think, and and evolved through these hearings from 2020 into 2021. And it was right there front and center at the hearing last week. And I really think that there is some momentum on this preemption issue because we heard the hodgepodge patchwork chaos, hodgepodge patchwork. And I did an episode on that June 9th hearing in the Senate where the NCAA was engaged in this last ditch attempt to get preemption before the July 1st uh, deadline in these new nil laws. I did a, a montage that I 
put in the front of the episode. And it was all these references to hodgepodge and patchwork. <laughs> I didn't get all of them. I was just getting the low-hanging fruit. And it was like three minutes, hodgepodge, patchwork, uniform, chaos. And it, this was the same argument. They trotted out the same thing. And I could have done a new uh, hodgepodge, patchwork, two-point Oh, but that all ties into this preemption argument. And they created the illusion here. And this is another powerful theme that the NCAA has used throughout its congressional campaign. And that is the appearance of false consensus. They want to make it seem as if everyone agrees. And they did this at the June 9th hearing. Everybody agrees that there should be a uniform standard. And they had law professors and they had university presidents and they had conference interests also everyone agrees and mark few was at that hearing on june 9th few was up there everyone agrees everyone agrees and at the very beginning of his questioning frank pallone who is the chairman of the committee and he's a democrat he did exactly what the ncaa wants him to do he went through every witness and said do you agree that there should be a national uniform standard for name image and likeness and it was yes, 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 all five, yes, including Remoji Huma. <laughs> so he was saying yes with an asterisk. And he said, yeah, so long as we talk about these other issues, if we get these other things in the Athlete's Bill of Rights or have an intelligent discussion about them, yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, preemption on nil, uniform standard on nil. That's the same tactic that Maria Cantwell, the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee and a Democrat, she's from the state of Washington, but Cantwell and Pallone use the same tactic and it goes to further NCAA interest. And all this is built around this sort of vague notion of uniformity. Uniformity is great. We need uniformity. And there are a few things I want to say about uniformity and then what the impact of a preemption provision would have, I think, on the NCAA's objectives here that have very little to do, I think, with preserving the integrity of the name, image, and likeness market. First of all, on this uniformity issue, there's no such thing as perfect uniformity, and it will never exist. And I think that was made pretty clear in the comments that the Uniform Law Commission made when they presented their proposed uniform law on name, image, and likeness to the full commission for approval. And when they were making the, the case for this law, they made some very important concessions. And one of them is that after having looked at every state law that was in place or proposed, they looked at 40 different state laws and proposals. And they came away from that saying that those proposals were strikingly similar. And the irony of that is that this is the Uniform Law Commission making the case for uh, proposed model legislation or uniform legislation that's built around the assumption of a lack of uniformity. But in fact, in reality, out in the real world, there was uniformity. And that is true today, despite the false claims of in-system stakeholders. So when you look at these state laws, these executive orders, the university policies, they are strikingly similar. And the differences between them are not material and the NCAAs and their minions are pressing a false narrative that there is chaos out in this new nil market because all these interests simply can't coordinate and people subject to regulation don't know how they're being regulated and there's no interstate consistency and it's simply not the case. And then the other thing that's important about preemption is that you have a camel's nose issue. So if the NCAA gets preemption under this false theme of uniformity, then it will have gone a long way to making the case for these other extraordinary federal remedies. You know, this camel's nose metaphor where you have to be aware of the camel that gets his nose in the door because before you know it, the whole camel's in the tent and then he's taken up 90% of it and you can't get rid of him. And it's really a, a metaphor for unintended negative consequences when you do something on the front end that seems innocuous. What, what, what's wrong with the camel's nose? Well, there's a lot wrong with the camel's nose. And preemption is a camel's nose issue because if the NCAA gets 
preemption, then it's going to come back around and say, wait a minute, yeah, we have this now nationally uniform authority. It's not a rule yet. We don't know what the rule's going to be because there is no specific legislation that talks in any detail. None of the legislation that's been proposed so far at the federal level talks specifically about what no rights will exist or won't exist. They're left to a third-party commission or a federal corporation or a third-party administrator to actually deal with the details. But what those bills provide are these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would give the decision makers the ability to do very little or nothing on nil. And that was the whole point. But what you're going to see if the NCAA gets preemption, they're going to come back around and say, wait a minute. Yeah, well, so we have this, but we really need this antitrust immunity because we still can't govern. We can't do the righteous work on behalf of these athletes unless we don't have to lay awake at night worrying about getting sued by some disgruntled athlete or some group of disgruntled athlete, greedy athletes. That's the argument they've been making. And then they're also going to tie that to this ridiculous prohibition of athletes being employees, which has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. This whole students can't be employees inclusion in this whole nil debate is a ruse. It has zero to do with name, image, and likeness. And so does antitrust immunity. And the NCAA got called out on that by Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz in that June 9th hearing. He just called them right out. And they didn't have a response to that. In fact, one of the professors who was pumping NCAA preemption propaganda came out and said, yeah, those two things have absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. But here we are again with the NCAA saying they're absolutely essential in order to preserve the integrity of name, image, and likeness benefits and the integrity of college sports. The other thing about preemption that is so important for the NCAA is that if it gets preemption, At the national level, we're back to a national authority being necessary in order to implement name, image, and likeness opportunities. And no matter what Mark Emmert or any NCAA minion says in 2021, in fall of 2021, the NCAA believes that it and it alone can be the only regulatory authority in college sports. And in the working group, the Federal and State Legislation Working Group, which was an NCAA working group designed initially to beat back state legislation on name, image, and likeness, or any potential federal legislation on name, image, and likeness, when they released their final report in April of 2020, and they asked for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities, preemption, antitrust exemption, and they called it safeguarding the non employment status of employees. So athletes can't be employees. And when they're laying out the case for that, they say this. Further, the subcommittee believes that the NCAA is the most appropriate and experienced entity to oversee intercollegiate athletics given the uniqueness of the collegiate model of athletics, its membership-driven nature, and daily connection to student-athletes, the breadth and scope of its administrative operations, its willingness to respond to the evolving needs of student-athletes, and its long track record of providing remarkable opportunities for student-athletes to gain access to higher education. And so, it, and that is the is kind of the central theme that the NCAA's campaign in Congress has been built around that the NCAA and only the NCAA can sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. They've had to back off of that because they got beaten up so badly in 2021. And now they're licking their wounds and they're trying to find a way to reestablish their relevance as a national governing authority. And one way to do that is to have a federal law that says that these particular class of benefits can only be regulated at the federal level. And the NCAA is going to come in and say, we're the only ones who can do it. And their propaganda at this hearing was really interesting because Mark Emmert referred to some entity, not the NCAA or maybe the NCAA. And then in response to a question about who should be in control of regulating nil, living Stone said, well, we, we don't want it to be a political body, <laughs> even though she's sitting in front of a political body asking for extraordinary protections and immunities. And she said, it doesn't have to be the NCAA, but maybe they, they need to be involved in it. And they're just talking around the issue. But the fact of the matter is the structure of these bills in the Senate that came in in 2020 and then Moran's bill in 2021 and then this renewed Gonzalez bill all have a third party 
that is technically not the NCAA to make it appear as if the NCAA isn't going to be laboring under the, its usual conflicts of interest and its profit motives in regulating a market that it doesn't want to interfere with its revenue streams. They're trying to create this sense of independence. But when you look at who is authorized to sit on all of those third-party entities, whether it's a commission, a federal corporation, or a third-party administrator, the criteria for Sitting in a position of authority and decision-making on all those bodies is that you have experience as a big-time NCAA insider or a big-time Power 5 insider. So all those bodies are going to be controlled by the NCAA, and it's just more smoke and mirrors. And the NCAA, through the preemption power, makes itself relevant again because the only purpose it was serving as a national regulatory authority— The only real purpose was to enforce the overarching compensation limit, which has been called into question by the Austin decision. And I think that is precisely what Bob Gates was referring to when he said the NCAA is in a fight for relevance. Well, getting preemption restores relevance. And the NCAA can disguise it however they want to, but they are making the case behind the scenes through their lobbyists, and you have to look at the devil that's in the details of these bills that have been proposed. But the NCAA is going to be in control at the national level of this nil market one way or another, and that is another way for the NCAA to preserve its administrative state at the national level as a national regulator. And I would say that the worst thing that came out of this hearing were those questions by Pallone. Uh, Well, do you support a uniform? national standard for name, image, and likeness. And if everybody's saying yes to that, the NCAA is really well on its way to reestablishing itself and its relevance as a national regulatory authority. Let me just talk about a a couple of these uh, other important themes that really have been woven into all of these hearings in Congress. They were disguised early on, but they're now right out there front and center. And I think this really is evidence of the NCAA's desperation and its commitment to making something happen quickly. And it's going to be a tidal wave of pressure in uh, Congress to try to get what they need to survive. And they are doubling down on Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model as a business model and a justification for the maximum exploitation of big-time football and big-time men's basketball players. And then they also brought in the collegiate model's bastard child, and that is this displacement theory that I mentioned earlier. And I'm going to talk about that in more detail in the next episode. So I think the way this is shaking out right now, I'm going to close this episode out. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about what the witnesses had to say. And then I'm really going to break down Linda Livingstone's testimony, the president of Baylor, because she really was the conduit, the primary conduit for the most important arguments that the NCAA is making now to reestablish its relevance at the national level. And there were some really interesting uh, comments from her. And the way that she pitched her role at the hearing and the interests that she was representing was really, really interesting. So we'll talk about that. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm-hmm.